Hey, I am so glad that you're joining me in the honest conversations about all things family. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor and a mom. Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. This is going to be a place for us to be real about the mess of parenting. Um, It's a place for you to feel validated and to find some self-compassion and some hope for the road ahead. Let's stand in the mud together because personally I think that is the absolute best place to start. I want to put a spotlight on a very specific question that parents often have when they're trying to support their anxious kids. They want to know when accommodating becomes enabling. It's a fine line. And for all you parents who need a little bit of help seeing that there is a light at the end of this tunnel, Please stick around because on the second part of this episode, I'm going to be spending some time with a dear friend um, who is a mom of two grown kids, one of whom uh, was really anxious as a child. And she's got some live testimony about how skill building around managing anxiety can truly turn out to be productive and helpful. So let's first start off by connecting where you're at. Does your child avoid playdates? Do they kick and scream when you say that it's time to go to school? Are they terrified of dogs every time you go out for a walk? Do they blame others every time they've made a mistake because the embarrassment just feels so overwhelming? Are tests, performances, or speaking in front of others a paralyzing experience? Do they hide in fear, cry easily, complain of aches and pains that you can't explain away? Do they beg you to stay home, skip out on something, or cancel a commitment? Are they embarrassed easily? When you watch someone that you love struggle, especially if it's an ongoing struggle, you instinctively want to bring them relief. It makes sense. It makes sense if you have any empathy for others at all, right? This is why when we see somebody stressed out and we know what the stressor is, we attempt to remove it. We make accommodations by changing something in their environment to make it easier for them to lower their anxiety. A common example of this is your kid calling home midday from school asking to be picked up early. You know, they don't feel well, they're panicky, or everything just feels too overwhelming and they're desperate for an escape route. Or, I don't know, maybe on test days they beg you to stay home. I want to be clear that not all accommodations are bad all the time. Some are needed temporarily, and other times it's just reasonable to sustain a very specific accommodation because really there's no purpose in trying to tackle that one specific thing. Like maybe you're never going to be a high-performance athlete, so avoiding that spotlight isn't something worth making myself face or deal with. But when it significantly interferes with exercising who you are or what you're hoping for in your future, our functioning is impaired when we cling to accommodations and we don't learn to face things that trigger our anxiety. The same is true when we aim to use an accommodation for a short phase, but then we don't push past that toward the goal and further stretch our comfort zones in order to gain capacity for facing it. 
I'm sure you know the term enabling. It's essentially the act of easing someone's discomfort so that they never have to ease it for themselves, which perpetuates the cycle of learned helplessness and allows the problem to continue or even grow. As parents, it's not our core role to protect our kids as they age, but it is our job to teach them to protect themselves, ways of managing distress that life brings, and really just how to face challenges with confidence. We want our kids to become adults who believe in themselves, who are willing to make mistakes and embrace learning. We want them to have the courage to be vulnerable and cope with the wounds they might endure as they navigate the world and the relationships in it. We don't accomplish this by enabling them. So the question is then, how do we tell the difference when it's effective accommodation and when it's slipped into that realm of enabling? So I just want to talk a few minutes about how the brain and nervous system work, just to lay that roadmap for answering that burning question. There's this thing in trauma and anxiety-based research called the window of tolerance. It's the range in which we keep our frontal lobes activated in our brains, which is where all the executive functioning happens. Things like being calm, creative, compassionate. We're problem solvers. We're curious. It's where logic and problem solving live. When our nervous system is operating outside of our window of tolerance, it's basically just too hyper-focused on staying safe from perceived danger to be able to let that frontal lobe operate, which then makes it impossible to cope, face things well, and challenge ourselves to grow. Above our window of tolerance is the zone where we're hyper-aroused and our body is charged up with the readiness to fight danger or to run from it. Below our window of tolerance, we're in a state of hypoarousal, which basically just means we're in a state of playing dead. We're going to wait for the, we're waiting for the danger to pass. It's when we tune out, we dissociate, or we kind of look vacant. Either end of that spectrum, we're not capable of learning and growing around and through the problems. That part of our brain is not on. And this roadmap offers us some distinction between when our influence on our kids' environment is to ease anxiety in a helpful and accommodating way, or if it is enabling. What we know about anxiety is that removing the things that make our kids anxious doesn't really solve the problem. It's a band-aid. It's not a cure. In the long run, we aren't helping our kids build their internal ability to tolerate distress and work through it for themselves so that they can learn to trust their capacity for handling tough situations. Instead, we end up teaching them to fear the distress that they feel and that their best available strategy is to dodge the feelings. But what we also know is that building a coping toolkit can take some time. And that in many circumstances, we need to make some short-term accommodations for our kids in order for them to stay in their window of tolerance often enough, not all the time, but often enough, that they are receptive to learning those critical coping skills. 
There's no point in trying to teach someone something if they're living in a constant state of fight, flight, or freeze. The info needs to be able to be absorbed to be used. Now, this is that zone where accommodations can be helpful as one part of a bigger plan. If you can't get your kid into a school building, how are you going to help them work on their ability to lower their anxiety while they're in that building? You may need to make some accommodations, like removing one barrier to help them having the tolerance to arrive there to begin with. What's just good enough to get them to face something? Maybe it's saying they don't need to attend their very first class in the morning for one week. Maybe it's getting a ride to school instead of walking there. Maybe it's meeting with a teacher to talk about removing an expectation or a perceived expectation or pressure so that they can be present in class without constantly worrying about that overwhelming expectation being there. Maybe they just need to have a cell phone access so that just at lunch they can text you from school instead of coming home at lunchtime just to check in, should they need to. But remember, the goal is not to continue to need those things. It's a short-term bridge to getting them into a position where they feel like they can deal with the whole target situation that's at hand. So when accommodations are part of your plan, remember to keep your ultimate goal in mind and work in baby steps to build up tolerance for handling the distress that comes with taking each step. Manage the anxiety along the way. In my online course called CBT for the Family Tools for Life, there's several lessons that I dedicate specifically to the process of breaking down overwhelming problems into manageable steps. And part of this process is figuring out what tangible accommodations are necessary in order to move up the ladder toward your goal. It's a strategy you can apply pretty much to any situation you have worry for or feels too overwhelming at first to tackle. Doesn't matter if it's a specific phobia or something more generalized, you can always take something that feels big and chop it into chunks so that you can do it in a sequence, slow way helping you arrive at a place where you're facing things and coping better and maybe surprising yourself at what you can handle. The risk of accommodations is that they can easily become enabling mechanisms if we don't stay committed to the bigger plan and keep moving up that ladder in baby steps. The chemical hit of relief that comes with making change in our environment can make a person want to stall there and just continue to use the crutch. And if we as parents can't hold them to the process and keep them moving along, even if it means reworking the plan, then we're reinforcing the idea that things are good enough and that's all they can accomplish. That they need the accommodation in order to be okay. We avoid stirring the pot into that distress and discomfort zone again. Our kids can tolerate probably more than you think they can. Our kids need us to believe in them, even when they say it just feels too big. And the thing about this is that it's not just a lesson contained to one situation. 
If you enable for one problem, your kids come to learn that this works. It feels relieving. And then why would you not apply that avoidance strategy to every other hard thing? Which we know is going to happen because that's what life is made up of. Situations that push the envelope and challenge us. Life is filled with opportunities to grow our capacities. And I'll tell you something. If you yourself struggle with anxiety, you might over-identify with your kid's distress in the face of anxiety-provoking circumstances and slip more quickly and easily into making things easy for them to spare them from that horrible feeling that you know all too well. It's part of the reason this course that I created is meant for families, not just for kids in isolation. For one, we do hold on to our learning better when we all practice the same skills together. But it also means that if others in your family, not just your highest anxiety kid in your house, everybody's going to learn to manage it better too. This models for our kids how we're going to move forward with better coping, less avoidance, more bravery, and confidence. Our lives open up when anxiety no longer rules the home. We stop shrinking our worlds and instead we grow them. Who doesn't want that for their kids? When you decide to make an environmental change to help your kid cope, think through about the lens of number one, will it help them to be more receptive to facing the problem? Number two, is it meant to be temporary? as a bigger plan to cope with anxiety, or is it a permanent accommodation that we feel really does make sense given who our child is and where they're headed? And number three, are we prepared to push past the step of accommodating into using that as readiness to grow more brave and tackle the rest of the toughness of the stuff that we feel anxious about? Just remember what the goal is. Ultimately, it's to teach your child ways of managing stress in order to cope with challenging situations in life throughout their years. Not making situations easy so that they can avoid discomfort and anxiety. And when you filter your accommodation plans through this lens, you can intentionally support them without slipping into that dynamic of enabling them to stay stuck. If you aren't parenting on your own and you have a partner in this muddy trench, Start with a conversation between the two of you. Get on the same page. Clarify what you want to see happen, what you believe is possible, and how you're going to stay on that same page in teaching, coaching, and supporting your child to embrace hard stuff. Get involved and treat this like a family challenge. I'm not going to tell you that this is an easy task, parents. It is not. And your child is going to push back at first because anxiety will tell them to. It will double down. But once they feel that empowerment of conquering one small step toward facing a bigger worry or fear that has held them back from living fully, you get to capitalize on that and use that as fuel needed to tackle the next step. And that's the platform on which bravery is built. We all need to believe that we have what it takes. And that comes from having proven it to ourselves, that we can do it. 
Keep your eye on that prize and continue to cheer them on with a full tone of confidence in them. Because just because they don't know it yet, they really are capable of being brave. And you can carry that torch for them. I've posted a link to the online course in the show notes, but I'm also including one worksheet that you can start to use on your anxiety combating mission as a family. And I'm also going to include a YouTube link where I specifically talk in a conversation about when anxiety presents as anger. And if you haven't listened to the previous episodes in this mini-series on anxiety, I would encourage you to go back and do so. I share tips and tricks for helping your kids cope that you can do at home. And please remember, there's a lot of families struggling with this. So please know that you aren't alone. And anxiety is super treatable. So you've got this. While we have one more episode dedicated to anxiety in this mini-series, it's specifically around when anxiety presents in a school environment, which is a bit of a unique thread to the conversation. So today I'm going to actually do our little hope wrap-up by inviting a guest on who has walked the walk. So Cindy Thompson is going to help us wrap up this five-part series on anxiety with her hope-filled wisdom. I've known Cindy for over 20 years, both as a colleague and as a really good friend. I've had the privilege to know her, her husband, and her two awesome kids, and have come to trust that their family's journey has been authentic and very intentional. They are really just a bunch of lovely souls. Cindy, you bring a really valuable lens to the lived experiences that we as parents are really in the thick of right now because you've been there, but you're also on the other side, which many of us are jealous of. So the best anchor that I think I've ever found when I was in the thick of the hardest space of parenting was to tie myself to friends who could say, yes, I have truly been there and I see the light for you. I can offer you some light because I've also lived that part of the journey. Um, So you are going to be that person for us today um, because you get to be in a position to offer some real grounded hope to parents who might feel like nothing's ever going to change and that this is where life is going to stay stuck at. So thank you so much for being willing to share your journey. It's my pleasure to be here for sure. I think about the value of just supporting one another so that we don't feel so isolated in this parenting experience. Yes. Isolation is not fun. No. Okay. Can you start like just wheel back the timeline and go back to when you have two kids. So are you, are you mainly thinking about Brianna? I am, but I'll yeah. paint the picture of two kids. So yeah. our daughter is the eldest. She is now just turned 27 and mm-hmm. our son is 25 and just got married this summer. So he mm-hmm. was uh, the, certainly our second child, but it's really fascinating. I'm actually glad that I had Brianna first because she really put us on that learning curve in a significant way. And our son came along a couple of years later and was super chill. So if I'd had our son first, I really probably would have had a bigger shock value 
in having our daughter and the anxiety that she experienced as a child. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where they're at right now. Um, our daughter, yeah, Brianna, it has always been a very anxious kid growing up. And of course, like all parents out there, we are flying by the seat of our pants in every yeah. moment. As much as you might think you kind of got this moment figured out, then you've got a whole other obstacle that'll come along that'll challenge you. Yeah. So thankfully, I mean, working at mental health at the time, I did have insight into what anxiety looks like. I could name it for her. Knowing that anxiety runs genetically on both sides of the family, this poor kid was mm. stacked. Yeah. So I, I like to bring in that piece because I think it's important to validate that for kids as you give them the language, not maybe when they're little, little, but later mm -hmm. on to understand that there is a piece there that in how they're wired mm -hmm. that can play a role. And it's not a blame game. It really is just how they are unique. Hmm. So <clears throat> Brianna, um, from very early on indicated to me that she was very, very sensitive. And I would say even before five, I figured out five key things that were really critical for her. So if she was hot, hungry, thirsty, tired, <laughs> or sick, yeah, those were the, the five things that I just learned to ask her, okay, let's go through the checklist. Are you hungry? And often she couldn't self-identify that. And I can think of many, many times she'd be famished and just not on her game. And yeah. I would ask if she needed some food and she'd say, no, I'm not hungry. But if I just very cleverly put a little snack plate out for her, she would be a completely different person the minute she ate. So I think about little sensitivities like that or big sensitivities that can make a big difference in our child's behaviors, how they're responding to their world as a critical piece too. That's so interesting because as soon as you said that, I was imagining the engine light, the check engine light that goes on in your car yeah. and how vague that sucker is. <laughs> like yeah. It comes on and you're like, uh, that could mean about eight different things. Yeah. And that whack-a-mole experience of parenting where we're like, we're, it's trial and error. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try this. Does food work? I'm going to try taking them outside and moving. Does that work? Is it an energy buildup thing? Is it a, right? Like mm -hmm. we just whack-a-mole one thing at a time yeah. until we go, oh, I saw the difference. And our kids don't yet have the insight to say, yes, I'm hungry. Mm -hmm. And so it's, giving them that language. And that's why I wanted to be able to give her sort of a checklist that she eventually could check for herself. And just in case I forget to link this later in our conversation, it was really cool for me as a mom. So that was before five that we started that. Yeah. And our daughter went to Thailand a few years, maybe five years ago, um, on a little, just a trip in this bit of just some holidaying with her cousin and she said to me afterwards mom you wouldn't believe it you know it was so hot I was super thirsty and I was tired because we'd been traveling all day and I was hungry can you imagine how awful I was feeling mm. here she was in her 20s and still making reference to that awareness yeah. wow 
And to so me, it's, it can stick. It can stick. It can stick. And to me, that's what we're doing, right? We're giving them the language to understand what might be going on, to take the parts that fit, and they're going to discard the ones that don't. Hmm. But you're right. It's kind of like trial and error to see which things might work. The other thing we learned is that she really is sensitive to touch. So she really likes that pressure. And even to this day, loves it if somebody would just lay on her and give hmm. her that pressure. Deep pressure. Yes. So huh. um, so there's things like that that I don't know if I picked up on that one when she was younger, but of course she was naturally getting more hugs and things like that at the time. Yeah. But also sensitivities to snow. She hates the sound or the feel of snow under her feet or cotton balls. So cotton balls, cotton balls. I know. So it's, these are the unique aspects of our kids and yeah. that tr- through trial and error, we are trying to figure out which things will work, what seems to make a difference. And exercise was another big one for sure. Like you mm-hmm. said, Karen. So often when I've worked with parents over the years through mental health and in my practice, it's checking on these things, pulling out those threads where you know they feel better when, yeah. and, and giving them opportunities to try those things first. So they're not getting in trouble for their anger or their behavior, but really helping them be proactive on what they might need. Hmm. Did you just see anxiety at home or where, where did she carry that? Yeah. Great question. So she, she showed it more at home. Okay. Although as a younger before pre before elementary school, there would be huge meltdowns in transitioning. And some of those could have been hunger related. Maybe they've been playing for a while and it's time to go home, but transitions were difficult for her. So sometimes I was the parent that was picking up my temper tantruming kid Mm -hmm. and they just do not want to go, which can feel really embarrassing as a parent Mm because you're not really understanding why my kid just doesn't come easily. Right. Right. Um, But I think that was a piece that I was learning along the way. At school, however, she learned really quickly to hold it together at school so the teacher wouldn't always see it. And then she would have a meltdown almost every day after school because there was just so much she was taking in. She could tell you which kid got in trouble, who was mad at who, really picking up on those social cues. But Mm -hmm. she couldn't tell you what she learned that day. She was picking up on everything else. What felt important to her to pay attention to, right? Like the, the, yeah, the feel in the room that mattered to her. Hmm. And it's neat to see even to this day, she's very intuitive that way. And and it makes her a great friend because she's going to pick up on those indicators that her friend's not doing well or someone close to her. But um, those were the things that she was sensing in school. So the teacher wouldn't necessarily, she wouldn't act out. She wouldn't show any signs of that. And when I named it as anxiety, the teacher thought I was just being overprotective. Yeah. And that was maybe around grade three. Hmm. So she, yeah, she had lots. Well, when I say she didn't have it at school, I'm lying a little bit because grade one was a hard year for her at the very beginning and what I did wrong. So we lived only like a block and a half from the elementary school. And as she was going to full days, being somewhat protective, I would say, honestly, thinking, okay, maybe it would help her if she came home for lunch and then went back after lunch. Well, that was the worst mistake I could have made because Mm -hmm. then we had two weeks of school refusal. Gotcha. And I was 
trying to sit with her, negotiate with her, try to get her into the classroom, and ended up having to leave her there crying and going out to my car in pieces because it was so difficult. Our husband, mm-hmm. My husband had to come home, and he would literally be carrying her out of the house, putting her in the back seat of the car. She'd be nailed up to the back window, yeah. sobbing, mm-hmm. and he's driving away because I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't pull myself together to haul her off to school in that way and carry her in and leave her at school. (laughs) So for those parents out there that are struggling with kids not wanting to go to school, I feel your pain. It's excruciating, isn't it? Oh my gosh. Awful. So, but you know what? It was about two weeks and I did kept consistently taking her I knew I couldn't not take her and I couldn't not leave her and she actually told me I don't know sometime later that the teacher said to her look if you're gonna stay here it's your student of the day you get to be the person that's the helper but I need you to stop crying and Mm -hmm. come and join us and she said that's all it took yeah so I want to give parents hope that we don't want to give in to that because after that, we never had any problems with her going to school. We just had to get over that initial hurdle. Hump, and yeah. We felt. yeah, makes me think of that concept of wall of futility. I have that conversation a lot with clients who come in with kids who are anxious. And and this we've just had this discussion in, earlier in this episode about when accommodating becomes enabling. And that's such a powerful example of we're doing our best. And there are some times where you have to accommodate just to get them to calm down enough to learn mm. the skills, but it's also that's very slippery slope zone mm-hmm. where you give an inch and they lock in, right? It's just because it's so relieving. Why wouldn't you want that experience, right? But if you're pushed past that and you're forced to face that wall of futility of there is no other way, they're making me go. <laughs> then your only adaptive features that can come out are, okay, how do I deal with my current circumstance? Not how do I negotiate going home for lunch? Because it's no longer an option. Really, it forces kids, which is so hard for parents to do because it feels cruel and you watch the distress unfold. But I love how you could say like, it turns out that was not in her best interest, but it feels like it is in the moment. Like I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give her some space, you know. I'm just yeah. gonna keep her home. It makes sense in the moment, but I love how you put that in that timeline of now we know what that how anxiety feeds off that. Mm-hmm. You know, our kids don't thrive off that. Anxiety thrives off that. Well, and it's hard for you as a parent to feel anxiety yourself because you feel like you're causing them distress. But in fact, I can tell you, she has no hard feelings other than remembering that short period where that was hard for her to go. But it's also showing our kids that we believe in them and that Mm -hmm. they do hard things. Yes. And that's an important message for them to hear because if we enable it and allow them to stay home, it's sending the message that they aren't capable of doing it. Yes. Oh, amen. Oh, I love that one. So good. So as I gave her that language, it did help over the years, of, especially those elementary years where 
we talked about anxiety, we would externalize anxiety. Mm-hmm. We would call it the worry bug and mm-hmm. we would tuck it in at night because nighttime was another time where it was very difficult for her to yeah. settle. So we had a little ritual that we created. We externalized the problem by naming the anxiety. And in doing so, it helps them rea- her realize and other kids that they have a chance to talk back to that, that the anxiety doesn't get to be the boss over them. So empowering. So I just think it's important to, to name it as well, right? And yeah. it allows you to be on the same team against the anxiety itself and to say, yeah. You know, how are we going to tackle this? Ooh, that sounds like anxiety talking, right? Are we going to believe everything it says? How many times does the anxiety lie to you? So that's the language we used in understanding the lies that anxiety tells. And again, you know, as a young adult, she was able to say she was going over to, we're living on Vancouver Island, and she was going to visit some friends on the mainland. And here she was in probably 22 or 23 at the time. And she said, it's interesting. I'm really anxious about going. And my anxiety is saying that something bad might happen to you guys while I'm yeah. gone. Yeah. So those are the full circle moments that <sighs> parents, when we give them the tools, you get to hear it fed back to you in that awareness. Yeah. So many of us are looking forward to that. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that must feel so good. Oh. Well, and wow. it's building their toolkit, right? So naming the emotion, naming what's going on for them, helping them um, recognize in their body when they're feeling that anxiety. And it will come out as irritability and other emotions, but re- starting to put those dots together to understand this is what I'm feeling and when and, and what's going on for me. Uh, because essentially you're building their toolkit and a recipe, if you will, for yeah. wellness down the road. It's slow though, right? Yes. Yeah. It's ongoing practice. Yeah. And, and I think it's just knowing that along the way at different stages, it might look a little bit different. It may be social anxiety. It may show up around exams in other ways, yeah. um, but or even that sensitivity about what they need in their bodies to look after themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just This isn't specific to anxiety, but it's kind of one of those stories that stood out for me as a parent, as a learning. And if I may just toss this into the mix. Um, yes, please. I had this preconceived idea that I needed to raise a daughter who was strong and independent. (laughs) And she would go, she was really disorganized and it just seemed like she couldn't think ahead to what she'd need for a track meet or a sleepover. So I was trying to grow her ability to really think for herself. And I kept using that language. I want you to be a strong, independent woman. Like think about what you're going to need for the day. And every time she'd come back with somebody's sweater somebody's water bottle, a watch that she had to borrow for time, any number of things. And when she was about 14, she said to me, you know what, mom, I may not be a strong, independent woman, but I am a strong, resourceful woman (laughs) at 14. I love it. Did you like stitch that and nail it to your wall? Like (laughs) that's frameable. And I've told that story so many times in the work that I do because it was a great reminder 
and I, and this is my new favorite saying is radical interdependence because this same kid, my anxious daughter, who, if you had told me this is how it would go in her twenties, I would have said you were crazy. Yeah. That same kid, because of the skills that she developed was able to move to Nairobi. She graduated with her teaching degree and then, and there's a bit of a story there too, that I'm happy to share. Mm -hmm. Um, certainly anxious, not wanting us to know how anxious she was feeling about graduating and what's next. She was able to move to Nairobi and every day in every way, the community that she's in there in the, at the school that she's at and within the community, she's needed to be resourceful. She's needed to know how to ask for help and when, Hmm. what a great reminder as a parent for me, if you told me that when she was 14, I wish I'd known it sooner because now I can see how important that resourcefulness is. Yeah. Such, it's so, I just, so I'm, I'm thinking about like how you, you set a stage with the skills, but it just allows kids to stay open to opportunities that continue to teach them and challenge them. Right. Like she, her, her ability to just land in Nairobi (laughs) in a new position right? Mm -hmm. Wasn't the end of the story. It's now she's there and she has to learn. She has to ask. She has to. So it's like without the skills, she wouldn't have gone Mm -hmm. to begin with, but it doesn't just mean, okay, she's great at everything now. Like there's, it's this ongoing journey that us as parents feel too. We're still learning how to name emotions, how to figure out what's in our body. We probably weren't taught to do that as kids and it it never ends, but it just gives rise to this opportunity to constantly live in situations that require new things of us. And now we have the skills to allow ourselves to grow, not avoid them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and that ties in nicely to... You know, you're full on four years, five years of university, and she was able to be home um, so that she could study here and go to Vancouver Island University. We were happy to provide that for her. So it was maybe six months before she was graduating, and she knew that this would mean a lot to her dad, so she knew exactly what to say, and she'll fully admit this now. So Mm -hmm. it brings to the point of even when they're adults, they still need our support in this same way as they did when they were younger. So she sat down here at dinner one evening and said, what do you guys think about my staying home for another year after I graduate from university and uh, save up to buy a house? (laughs) This is the same kid that's not had to pay rent, not had to buy her groceries or pay bills other than her phone bill or her car. And I just knew that her learning was just beginning around adulting in a different way. And so my husband, thankfully, we had talked because I knew this was coming. She had dropped a couple of hints. And I thought I did it in the kindest, most supportive, encouraging parent way. Like what kid wouldn't want to move out of the house at 23 or whatever she was and set up a place, their first apartment, Mm -hmm. start your career. This is such an exciting time. That's kind of how I imagine I said it. Like, I think that you need to go and have that opportunity first before you have the responsibility of owning a house. Like, go have fun with that first. Right. Yeah. Play with it. Yeah. Well, you would think 
that we had asked for her firstborn child. What she heard is that she's kicked out as of graduation. (sighs) And for three to four weeks following, and maybe a little bit more thereafter, she would say, well, since you're kicking me out, she was so hurt by that. But really what it was, she was scared. Yeah. scared about what was next and she didn't know where she was going to be and work and she even would say what you want me to set up a house and start my new career and maybe move to a new town all at the same time yeah (laughs) yes honey that's what we all do (laughs) (laughs) this is the way of the world my love (laughs) out you go (laughs) and she had just done her teaching so she had used language like um, it's not up to you to decide if I'm in a growth mindset or not or something. Oh, growth mindset. He was using all the teacher language back then. Yes. And oh. in a certainly hurt, but but also scared more than anything. Defensive. Yeah. It was a defense strategy. Absolutely. Yeah. So what does this kid do? She, just partly despite us, I'm sure, but she had actually been thinking about going overseas to teach anyway. So mm-hmm. she threw her hat in the ring for international teaching and got Nairobi and she exceeded what my hope for her would have been I didn't expect her to learn a whole new culture as well and move to this really amazing chaotic city like Nairobi of four million people but she exceeded what I was asking her to do in a much smaller way and you know what she's loved it and if I hadn't established that with her she might have not gone. She might not have felt ready for a while. I don't know what that could have looked like, but she needed that nudge. And again, it was another affirmation. When we hold them capable and know that they can do it, they will rise to that occasion. You dared her, right? Yeah. You kind of dared her. I, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, right. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And that spoke to the anxiety because then she had to actually face the anxiety herself, mm-hmm. right? It's, ah, it's anxiety that's scared of this and I can beat this. Yeah. And then she went all in. <laughs> let's just move. Let's just move to the other side of the world. That's it. Yeah. Well, now wow. she would happily say it feels like home for her there. She's just finished. Well, this year was their fourth year of teaching and she needed to let them know if she's going to continue. And she just signed on for two more years there. Wow. And, you know, it's amazing, her little community there. We've had a chance to go visit her there and see where she's living. And she's resourceful every single day on what she needs and how to get it. Hmm. Yeah. Cindy, chills. I love it. Oh, I love it so much. And I need to catch up with Brianna because she's got stories accumulating that I'm not going to be able to catch up with. So I better touch base with her. Well, and it's so neat that she's thinking about now becoming a a counselor. She's just applied um, to university to do her master's degree and is now thinking of going into counseling because she has so many kids coming to her there wanting some support. And so she's just intuitively now passing along what she's been learning. Amazing. So, yeah, so I'm glad to have helped with this, Karen. It's so exciting to see the message that you're giving those parents and to be out there knowing that you're holding them up and offering them what they need right now. 
it feels thick, right? To be in it. I just can't handle the thought of people sitting in it alone. So that's where we stand together. And thanks for standing with us today. Absolutely. So glad to be here. Thanks for sticking with me through this slightly longer episode. And I hope you have felt encouraged by Cindy's experience and her journey. Don't forget to take a look at today's show notes, where you'll find related resources and my letter from the trenches. If you're wanting to know a little bit more about my work, please subscribe to my living room learning page at my.thrive-life.ca forward slash LRL series. I'll be able to keep you posted on new tools and resources that I put out in the world. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook where I share links to my projects, offer up free tools to support you and your family, and I keep things real from a parenting perspective. Standing shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in the mud. Let's talk again next week.